Well, since the UK left the EU, I thought I'd show a video from that part of the world, huh? You guys are like, man, this is Hines County, Jackson, Mississippi. What's up with that? This morning, we are going to talk about that very idea, the power of words. As we look at James chapter 3, we'd love for you guys to turn there. If you have a black ESV study Bible in front of you, maybe you do. It's page 1012. That'll take away the intimidation factor for some of you not wanting to look foolish and ignorant trying to find James. We don't judge around here, okay? James chapter 3, we'll look at the first 12 verses in a little bit. Page 1012. Many of you, of course, turn, tune in to your Bibles. At least that's what we trust that you're doing. James chapter 3. The power of words. Scripture tells us that in the beginning God created. And how did he create? Ex nihilo, he created something out of nothing. God spoke and things were created. In John chapter 1, it tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only one begotten of the Father, the Word. The Word is powerful to God, and God has created a creative universe and has set that into motion, the power of the spoken Word. And just as our God spoke the world into being, He created a whole world with His words I want to tell you this morning, this is the big idea. I'm going to give it to you up front and as we close this morning. But words create new worlds. Words create new worlds. But in a moment, as we look at James 3, we're going to see there's some problems with our tongue, right? Now, we're going to read in a moment a select passage of Scripture as we walk through this series in James. We're going to read it, and for the most part, you're going to get it. Now, on Wednesday or Thursday, whenever it was, when the UK left the EU, you didn't get that, did you? Don't pretend like you did. You were looking up those definitions. What's the United Kingdom? What are those countries that are involved? What's the European Union? It's a big deal around the world. But you didn't really get that. You had to do some research. But what we're going to look at in a little bit, I think you're going to get it. I think you're going to, for the most part, understand its essence. But where it's going to ruffle you and rattle you a bit, I believe is your own life when you walk out those doors or these doors to leave today. When you ponder and reflect and think about the world that you have. Remember, words create new worlds. What kind of world are you living in? What kind of world, the bigger question, what kind of world does God desire for you to live in? What kind of creative beating has he created you to be? I love the NBA playoffs. Anybody feel me on this? One of the things I love about the NBA playoffs is the cutthroat competition, the insane level of athleticism. Now, on Tuesday nights in our gym across the parking lot, I've noticed some of our guys showing up, sort of impromptu, and they're playing basketball. Nick Crawford and Austin Brown, they're opening up the gym. I went in the other night, and I saw Parker Berry. Parker's my friend sitting over there. Now, for a white guy, Parker Berry's got a vertical jump. Now, I'm telling you, he can get up. And I just, for a moment, watched these guys, Parker and some of these guys, play ball. And I'm like, they got skill. They're better at basketball than I am at my age and back then. They're just better. But the guys in the NBA, they're just better than all those guys, aren't they? And one of the things that, that's so pronounced about the NBA is not just the insane level of athleticism and the cutthroat competition, but it's the jawing and the trash talking. I was watching an interview with Charles Barkley. They asked Charles Barkley, a trash talker himself, who are the greatest trash talkers that you've ever played for or against? At the top of his list was Larry Bird. 
Larry Bird was a big time. You can YouTube this, not now because we're having church, but later, guys, you can YouTube Larry Bird trash talking. And he was a master at jawing and trash talking. I love the, the true story one time of an NBA playoff game with Boston Celtics, whom Larry Bird played for, and the Seattle Supersonics, where their star player was a guy named Xavier McDaniel. And it was a critical play. In fact, it was the play of the game. A timeout had been called. There was just a few seconds left. The game was on the line. Larry Bird walks out of the, time, of the huddle on the bench early, and he walks over to Xavier McDaniel and says, I'm going to shoot. We just designed a play where I'm going to shoot. I'm going to shoot from right here over you, and I'm going to make the shot. And Larry Bird, you know where this is going, right? Larry Bird shoots right there over Xavier McDaniel and makes the shot. I love another trash-talking true story in the NBA. It was 1997 or 98 when the Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were playing Carl Malone, known as the Mailman, and the Utah Jazz. You remember this series? I was a newlywed at the time. And I remember this where, it, again, a critical situation at the end of the game, and Scottie Pippen inadvertently fouls Carl Malone, who was like 90% from the free throw line. He didn't want to foul him. And Carl Malone, known as the Mailman, went to the free throw line after a timeout and Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan's right-hand man, he bumps Carl Malone. And he says to him right before this critical free throw, he says, mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. <laughs> Carl Malone missed both of those free throws and they lost the game. Just about roughly 10 days ago, LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers had lost game four. They were down in the series, as many of you know, three games to one. It looked like they were done. And LeBron James in the post-game press conference was angry. A whiny baby, if you ask me. But anyway, he was just a little angry. And he was, he was uh, calling out Draymond Green, no relation. And he just was frustrated with Draymond Green and what he was, way he was playing, maybe some of the kicking and grabbing. But what angered LeBron, I found so fascinating, it was, what, it was something, something that Draymond had said. And he said, man, you don't, you don't say that. He went too far in what he said. The NBA suspended Draymond Green for game for the next game, game five, and the Cavs, as many of you know, went on to win game five, six, and seven. LeBron James and the Cavs won the NBA title and illustrated the truth of this passage that we're going to read today in James chapter three, that words matter, that the tongue is powerful. Let's look at it. James chapter three, verses one through 12. Not many of you should become teachers. Uh-oh. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring for, 
spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapefruit produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There is in our bodies this thing that we call a tongue. It's 70% water, 20% muscle, 10% fat. A man's tongue on average is 10 grams larger, weightier than a woman's tongue. Women speak on average 20,000 times a day. Yes, we know. Men, on average, 15,000 words a day. Now, men, we get that, right? That side of our brain, the logical side is saying, hey, man, it's heavier. It's just harder. It's harder to lift, right? We get weary throughout the day. I've had enough. Now, that is, some of you know, know us well, that's reversed. That's gender reversed in our family, okay? So I'm, I'm with you ladies there. But it, this is a powerful weapon. It can be a mighty tool. With it, James decries, we bless and we curse. The world, you and I, we call it hypocrisy. What turns us off more than that? What keeps more people out of these pews here and other places than this? Proverbs tells us there are six things in Proverbs 6. It says there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And of those seven, three have to do with the tongue, a lying tongue, a false witness, and the one who sows discord. In the early part of Romans, a couple of our community groups have been studying Romans this spring and summer. In Romans chapter 3, it indicts all of us. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, everybody. All of us have sinned, and sin has affected every part of us. And Paul, given this description, says, talking about the, the sinner within us, it says, he says that their mouths, their throats are an open grave. That their tongues, as James would say, it spews out both blessing and cursing. There's a po the poison of a snake under their lips. Moses, it tells us in, in the Psalms, in Psalms 106, that Moses was angered by the water, that he grew bitter in his spirit, and what did he do? He lashed out with his lips. Isaiah, confronted with the holiness of God, says, woe is me, in Isaiah 6, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people with an unclean lip. Job says, I am, in Job 40, I am vile. I need to put my hand over my mouth. Peter boasted, they stumble, but I will not stumble. And then we learn later that Peter himself stumbled, what? By his tongue, by boasting and lying and denying that he knew Jesus and cursing. There's a tongue in our bodies, and the tongue in the Bible is talked about over and over again for its potential for good, to create new worlds and the propensity for evil and how it trips us up. Maya Angelou, the late great Maya Angelou mentioned the power of the tongue and she said, with our words we can embitter, we can encourage, we can edify. The power of the tongue, it can stir men to war, it can embitter nations, it can cause churches to split. It could comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's the power of the tongue. And the scripture, James the half-brother of Jesus and Jesus himself relates the tongue to the heart. Over and over again, you will see Jesus with the tongue depressor 
and a stethoscope. And you go into a doctor's office, you have to probably do some paperwork and you have to wait. And when she or he comes in to see you, many times, I have bad memories as a child, but they'll stick that large popsicle stick right on your tongue and they'll say what? Say ah. Because they know this very thing, that the tongue, let's put that up, the tongue is an outside indicator of an internal sickness. I don't want you to miss that this morning. The tongue can be, and often is, an outward indicator of an internal sickness. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 19. This is one of my memory verses when I was a youngster. Let the words of my mouth, anybody know it? And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. If you have an open Bible in front of you, look back at James chapter one in verse 26, and he says what? Uh, if you think you're religious and you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart and your religion is worthless. Now religion, he's not talking about a dry orthodoxy, he's talking about a genuine faith. And you don't have a genuine faith if you don't bridle your tongue, and you in turn, the unbridled tongue shows the deception of the heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. When I was a little boy in a Sunday school class, our teacher was talking about Jesus and the land in which he was from. And the other students seemed to be very disinterested. They were, their heads were bobbing, their eyes were glossing over. And I thought I'd ramp it up a little bit. And I told the entire class and my Sunday school teacher that I had been to Israel. And she looked at me with a heavy dose of suspicion. I thought a trip to Middle Eastern land would give me some serious Sunday school credibility. And this teacher in her grace, she gave me a chance to back out. She knew my family, our isolated travels. She said, Robert, have you, have you really been to Israel? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have. Yes, ma'am. Isn't it crazy kids will exaggerate just to feel loved? Isn't that stupid of kids? Most of them have left the room so we can talk about them, right? But isn't that just stupid? Kids are stupid like that. They'll exaggerate just to be loved, to feel important and valued. Now, that'd be cool if it, was, if it stopped in childhood, right? What Paul say when he was talking about love and growth and maturity in the body of Christ? He said, man, when I was a child, I acted like a child. But now that I'm a man, I've got to put away childish things. I say this uh, often. Jesus wants us to be childlike. In fact, he was so clear in Matthew chapter 5 that unless your faith is like a child, as simple as a child, you, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If it's a religious, orthodox faith, mm -mm. but the simple, humble trust of a child. But childlike, that's honored. Childish is not. But we fail to thrive and flourish. We fail to grow up. And here we are today in our adulthood, and we, we can do a lot of the same things, can't we? What I love about James is what I love about Proverbs. I think we've said it each and every week that it's just a book of practical wisdom. It's a book about practical wisdom that focuses on how our lives ought to be oriented, the steps we ought to take, and whether or not we're really applying what we know. And here in James, we see this orientation of the heart. There's lots of sins 
of the tongue. If we were in a small group setting, we could talk about some of them. But there's exaggerating, there's lying, there's gossiping, there's criticizing, there's complaining. Anybody guilty? We all stumble in many ways, but Scripture, James here and other places indicate that he who controls his tongue, he or she, that's, that's, that's another level of maturity, and that's, that ought to be where we progress. We're enticed, we're provoked with the sins of the flesh. We talk about the leader, the Christian leader, famous or not, who fell, who stumbled sexually in sin. But what about our pride? What about our smugness? What about our self-righteousness? There's a great book written years ago called this, The Culture of Complaint. And in this book, he talks about that that is our, our default setting. Our default setting is to complain. When we are hard pressed, we complain. We get to a place where um, everything's not perfect, right? The, our inalienable right, our inalienable constitution right is life, liberty, and what? The guarantee of happiness. It's the guarantee, and if every need isn't met, if every desire isn't satisfied, according to this book, The Culture of Complaint, I believe it to be true, then what do we do? The Bible calls it grumbling or murmuring. That's a good word. Say that one out loud, murmuring, murmuring. That's one of those good ones, like the word rural. Say rural, rural, rural. Look at the person next to you and say rural. Now say murmur. Say don't murmur. Point at them, say don't murmur. Quit your murmuring. But we live in a culture of complaint. But for the believer, I would say that our dialect ought to be thanksgiving. Back in chapter one, James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And in your default setting of complaining, do you have any margin, any allocation, any room for gratitude? Philippians 1, 3, what I love about Paul is we, we see that how we see his towering intellect and we see, see how he brought Jesus to uh, Athens and to the Jewish people and to the intelligentsia of his day. But we forget how relational he is. In Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Having a heart that overflows with gratitude. Jesus tells a story about 10 people, a parable of 10 people being healed and only one returns to give him thanks. And we think, what a silly story. If I'm healed, if God does something big in my life, I'm certainly going to return and give thanks. But do we? What are God's good gifts to us, to you specifically? God didn't have to create the Pacific Ocean or the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon or the Grove. God didn't have to create a big, juicy porterhouse steak. He didn't have to create a dog chasing its tail, the sound of ocean waves, the feel of sand between our toes, the smell of flowers, the taste of chocolate. But he did. For you and I to have a mouth that blesses, we need our dialect to be thanksgiving to move away from that culture of complaint. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, it's so indicting, the the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. Isn't that true? In this culture of complaint we live in, I wonder today if you're complicit. 
if you're a part of it. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. There's Jesus with a tongue compressor and a stethoscope. What are your words? Your words are going to reflect what's inside of you. Here in James chapter 3, he says, not many of you should be teachers. To be honest with you, I have prayerful concerns about the future of the church. Because more times than not, when I'm with people here in our community in Mississippi, I hear a lot of people saying, a lot of young people say, man, I wouldn't want your job. Woo. Man, I would not. They can't pay you enough. I love it when you say that, by the way. You, they can't pay you enough. Isn't that great? Don't you agree with that? They can't pay me enough. Everybody just say that. Just stand up. And, you know, I don't want your job, people say. And I look at young guys like Nick Crawford and a younger guy like Daniel Wagner, and I think about the future of our church and the church, and it swells me up with pride thinking of the potential of these guys as leaders and teachers. What James is saying is it's pretty much easy to understand. Who's the most criticized person in the house of God? Do you know? Who's the most criticized person at Fondren Church? Just point at him if you want to. It's the guy that stands up and teaches the most. Y'all remember Josh Brister? He's over in Spain. He led our worship a lot. We were sitting around the staff table several months ago in the middle of the spring, he goes, man, people, people have a lot to say about the worship leader, but poor the pastor, man, they got a lot to say about the pastor. I just didn't feel good in that moment about what Josh had seen or heard. Or, so he's back in Spain. <laughs> we incur a stricter judgment. But let me say this, so that we see the full-orbed message from scripture. There's a value in teaching. In fact, we've made church planting too difficult. We've made it too complex. You preach the gospel, you baptize the new converts, you raise up leaders, you rinse and repeat. Jesus said his last words, and last words, C.S. Lewis says, are lasting words. And Jesus said, go and make disciples. Teaching, teaching. There's a high value. In Acts chapter 13, there's a couple of guys named Paul and Barnabas. And they are, Barnabas and Silas, rather. And they had this gift, this anointing. And, and the church in Acts 13, it says they, they gathered around them, they laid their hands on them at the church of Antioch to send them out. And they had this gift of teaching. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about the, the variety of gifts that have been given to us. You have a gift, and it's been given to you by the grace of God. It may not be an upfront public gift, but it's a gift. And Paul says we ought to use it, and we ought to use it diligently. There's value in teaching. But there's a danger and a vulnerability for teachers. In Matthew 23, when Jesus was railing against religion that was judging people and having people stuck, he said, woe is you, who? Woe is you, the religious leaders. And you love the places of honor. Those of you who are teaching the Torah, you love the places of honor at the banquets and the chief seats, the best seats in the synagogue. You love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. You love to be called rabbi. And we have to be very careful, all who teach. There's a, a stricter judgment. You hear me say that there's perks and privileges in my line of work, and there's also pressure in my line of work. I was driving down Dueling Avenue a couple of nights ago, 
And Bill Latham, the owner and operator, so if you know Bill, the owner and operator of Bavalu, he waved me down, hopped out of his car, which is nicer than mine. He walked over to me and he handed me this gift certificate, a nice one, I might add, to Bavalu. And the reason he did that is I think he just wanted to say thank you. He called me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, we're, you know, these Bobaloos are taking over and we're going to plant one in Greenville, South Carolina. And there's a couple of churches in this area where we're going to put a Bobaloo. And I would love for you to talk to those pastors and tell them that we're good neighbors. I did. It's his way of saying, thank you, preacher. Thanks for being in our community and thank you for doing something kind. Here's something kind for you. Uh, several weeks ago, one of our neighbors who doesn't come to church at all, very eccentric guy. I, I tell him he looks uh, like Blake Shelton, not quite as handsome as Blake Shelton. I, I've told him that too. But he, he's kind of that build, tall, lanky, kind of country guy. Doesn't go to church at all. And several weeks ago, he approached me, just walked up to, to me in the lawn. And he goes, hey, man, you know, there's another preacher down the street. He's a, a new preacher at this uh, new church and da-da-da. And he came back and he goes, man, we got, you're a preacher and this guy's a preacher. We need to get together and talk about God. And a couple of weeks ago, we were home after church one Sunday. And somebody's knocking on the door and we were just tired. And so we, in the name of Jesus, just uh, ignored the knock. <laughs> Which is, care you got to be careful when you got a family of five. It's like, no, get, no don't, get, don't, get, don't get it. Everybody here, don't get it. Don't get it. I'm, I'm yelling really loud to tell you not to get it, which means they're hearing me say, don't get the door. So we didn't get the door. He walked around the back <laughs> through the garage and said, hey, what did Robert preach on today? And Susan said, James chapter one. Well, you know, the other guy preached on Exodus 18. We need to get together. We need to talk. There's something about which, by the way, I hadn't done yet, which probably means I'm going to hell. I don't know a lot about evangelism, but if someone's like, please, let's talk about God and you don't talk about God, that's bad. <laughs> so I'm incurring a stricter judgment, right? That's just the life of a preacher. But if you're a teacher, you're going to be asked to teach. You're going to be asked for a fresh word when you go places. When you invite me over, you're going to ask me to pray. And that's the life of a teacher. We have to be careful. And I believe what Scripture teaches is that we need to pray for our leaders. And we need to constructively, constructively bring criticism. But when you stand here, there's something about it. There's a weight of responsibility. In talking about the tongue, James gives several metaphors, the first of which are the bit and the rudder. And the idea here is, is, I think, a very good metaphor that we can, for the most part, understand. Something small controls something big. The bit in the horse's mouth, the rudder in the ship. But both the bit and the rudder have to overcome contrary forces in order to control and direct the horse and the ship. And James wants us to understand. I'm just giving you the essence now. James wants you to understand that your tongue has to overcome contrary forces in order to control, govern, and direct what you say and how you live. You and I, I'm telling you, I told you about one of mine, but you and I, we have flesh. And we have to fight that flesh because there's something in our flesh that doesn't want to answer the front door. 
Oh, we love the gift certificate to the restaurant, but we don't want to answer the front door. And at times, we don't want to talk about God or give people the love and time that they seek. We're all prone to exaggerating and lying and gossiping and criticizing and murmuring and complaining. And I would hope, I know James hopes, that we would not let this world trap us and ensnare us and enslave us into this culture of complaint, but that our dialect would be thanksgiving because our words can create new worlds. He goes on beyond the bit and the rudder to give two more, a couple of more analogies with, in similar vein. He talks about the forest fire and the tamed animal. Now Molly, who led us in worship, is from the great wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. And if, if you know this, and she's proud of it, but I know she knows what's happening back home. I hope y'all aren't personally affected, but 23 and counting people have lost their lives in this flooding in West Virginia. And if you look out at my wife's home state in California, the headlines today, California wildfires are charring 30,000 plus acres right now. And James is saying to us, just as, just as a horse is controlled by a small bit, just as a ship is monitored by a little rudder, a gigantic fire can start with a tiny spark. There is, I've learned, an escalation with our words. It's why I'm reminded often that I need not to live in my flesh, but I need the Holy Spirit's power in my life. And sometimes the best thing I can do is to not be productive, is to stay away from the treadmill of ceaseless activity and to sit and think and let Jesus do work with the stethoscope in my own heart. Because you know, here's what I've learned. How I talk to people is how I feel about people. So I've got to let him do that in me. The stethoscope that Jesus has to let him work in my heart. Little things, big influence. James mentions the tamed animal. And I think he mentions this, teaches this with the backdrop of creation. God created and he said man, man and male and female ought to have dominion over what? Over the, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the, the cattle on the hills, the, 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 the things that creep on the ground. Noah, when he gets off the ark in Genesis 9-2, I was studying that this morning. In Genesis 9-2, it talks about how the animals greet us with fear and dread because we have dominion over them. And think, that was written so long ago, but think of our day. In our day, we have dancing bears and trained seals and talking dolphins and charmed snakes and acrobatic birds. We have dogs that jump through hoops or let us dress them up silly in the Westminster uh, dog show. We have lions that open up their mouth and let the trainers stick their heads in the mouth. We have even elephants who march in parades with humans perched on top of them. We tame animals, don't we? We're, we're able to do that pretty well. 
And James is saying, by way of illustration, that the tongue is untamed and untamable apart from God. This morning, here's what I'd like you to do if you receive this word today. I'd like you to just say to God, I can't do this on my own. I I really can't. And some of you, let me get real here, some of you, you you don't like the world that you've created with your words. Somebody's really hurting now because of you. Henry Cloud says if you go to work and you see someone drooping and their head is hanging low, their shoulders are slumped, they're sad and depressed, there's a 98% chance that they just had a bad conversation with somebody. So maybe you're here this morning and somebody is really hurting because of your words and then there's collateral damage. And that's the tough thing about family life in particular, the collateral damage. Your words create new worlds. And James closes this portion of scripture by giving a few more analogies, the salt water, the sea water, the the tree, the fig. And he's driving home his point that he wants you and I to get. And he says, from the same mouth, we read it a minute ago, from the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. There's a gross inconsistency. And we can't do this on our own. So I'm going to close with this. The Proverbs say this, like apples of gold and settings of silver, so is a word aptly spoken, well spoken. If you're a note taker, I'd love for you to write that down. He's saying what I know would fire James up, the right word to the right person with the right tone at the right time can create a whole new world. Many of you can sit here today and you could probably resurrect a word spoken to you that maybe was harsh, maybe was unpleasant, maybe was critical. And it was spoken to you and you still know the words today. And you're still, after all these years, wrestling with God's notion of forgiveness. Similarly, I can point back to some key points in my life And know that there were some people, like apples of gold and settings of silver, they spoke a well-timed word. And it didn't embitter, it edified and it encouraged. And so today, there's not a lot of complexity in the understanding of this. Go home and look at these metaphors and dissect them and learn more about a bit and a rudder. Learn more about tamed animals and forest fires. Small things, a small thing like your tongue has huge consequences. So maybe today, maybe this week, for you an apple of gold and a setting of silver, it could be a humble word. Not too long ago I spoke and I was feeling something about someone and I spoke words of anger. The words that I needed, like apples of gold and setting of silver, I had to go to that person and say, I'm sorry. I had to speak humble words. That's never easy, is it? 
Maybe for you, you just want to, you have a critical spirit. You complain a lot and people know that. Trust me, people know that. And for you, you want to have an intentional, concerted practice of just saying good, nice things. Don't make your words manipulative, but let them be sincere. They can be kind words. Simple things, just make that a practice to begin to say words that edify and that build up. My wife and my family, they're in Charleston, South Carolina today attending a ceremony for a couple of our nieces as they're dedicated. And they are in a, in a predominantly African-American community in a church in Charleston that's located just a couple of miles from what happened last summer, June 15th, 2015. When a young 20-something-year-old white male walked into the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the most historic churches in America and sat for an hour through a prayer service and Bible study and then got up as planned and shot and killed what turned out to be nine people. And E60, a sports documentary on ESPN just a couple of weeks ago, shared a story, moving tribute, about 14 minutes long of a young man who plays college baseball now, but at the time was a high school senior. Raised by a single mom, him and his sister. She was one of those, one of those that this young man shot. They caught him, law enforcement who gets a bad rap today. Thank God for our law enforcement. But in fact, say something good to a law enforcement officer when you see them. That may be some good application. But law enforcement officials caught this young man in North Carolina hours later. And he said that his motivation was to start a race war. And this young man featured on the ESPN documentary the very day after it happened. He looked at the camera and the interviewer and he said, I cried and I cried and I cried because he shot my mom. But the words I want to say to my teammates and to this community and to the world is love is stronger than hate. Our words can create new worlds. Pray with me.